Hello, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, yeah, in this episode, I'll be looking at Pikmin's model. Um, Pikmin's model is, uh, I think, a story most people like. I haven't heard anyone complain about this story. It's um, it combines several interesting things that Lovecraft has been playing with. Uh, for a while, one of which is art. Um, I think I first noticed art being a major theme of his short stories back in Herbert West Reanimator, where he talks about the this the image of the trenches in World War One, and says something like, "If someone were to draw this or paint this, you know, they'd be able to like interpret it or something." Um, and go back to my episodes I talk about on, on Herbert Westry Animator. I talk about it um, there. So, and then there's been other works where he really kind of engages in art, especially modernist art. And if you know from his letters, he was constantly raving about uh, Clark Ashton Smith's paintings and trying to encourage his the people he wrote to, to, to check out Clark Ashton Smith's stuff. He was constantly sending recommendations to other people to look at his things. Um, the, I mean, the cultural context, of course, is World War One, and if we look at art in the early twentieth century, it's hard not to see World War One as just a central event in modern art. You know, because you know when the world went insane, millions of people died in the trenches. Uh, Western civilization seemed to want to annihilate itself. You know, one response of artists to this was to was to deal with more macabre themes or to totally break down reality, um, you know, or just darker themes in a lot of art. Um, but certainly it, in, modernism was already moving along. You know, photography had already kind of undermined a lot of the foundations of painting. So modernists came in and said, well, let's explore other things. We had new psychology. So you had people exploring psychology in, in art. So all this stuff is going on already, but World War One, I, I think, really pushed that along. And if you read uh, uh, that book, uh, Poole, what's his first name? Anyway, it's his, first, his last name's Poole, and the book's called The Wastelands, which is about how World War I shaped modern horror in many areas. Art, film, books, you know, stories. And he's, he wrote a lot about art and how artistic expression was transformed. And really horror painting became a thing after World War I. You know, just the imagery of World War One itself—the dead bodies, the gas masks, uh, kind of the monstrous scenery—all of this had a big impact on how people, you know, on the kind of the gaze of the 20th century. So certainly, that's going on in Lovecraft's thinking about art. He, he talks about this explicitly in *The Hound*, which is a great story, a funny story, but you see people who kind of they, they become interested in art and strange philosophy and when they get bored with that they have no other choice but to jump into grave digging as a way to fulfill their cathartic need for for escape or maybe not even escape is the right word but their their need to kind of face face reality through through art it takes them to these dark places and eventually they build that museum of of the macabre right um in 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 like a basement they were renting out so that's, uh, it's in that story, and, and it's in quite a few others. I think, like, The Quest of Erion is about art to a certain degree. You have um, um, their music a bit, but you got the music of Eric Zahn. Of course, uh, a lot of stuff about architecture. Um, now, Lovecraft's interest in architecture is really antiquarian more than is modernist, but I think with art, 
the way he talks about art, it, it shows you that he's aware of modern developments in art and in the visual arts in particular. And that's what you have here. Now, the story, I think most people listening to this probably know the story. Um, the narrator uh, is basically telling the story of his encounter with, his friendship with, his, his acquaintance with uh, Richard Upman, Upton Pinkman. Um, Pinkman will be a major player, or do I want to say minor? He's a player. He's a significant player in the dream quest of the of unknown Kadath, but there he's uh, a ghoul. Uh, so that's something he definitely added later. Now these are all written around the same time. So Pickman's motto was written in September of 1926. It appeared in Weird Tales about a year later, in October 1927. Uh, dream quest of unknown Kadath was written later 1926, early 27. So. I can go back to the letters, maybe the exact date he started working on this, but it took him a few months to write. But at some point, he included Pikmin as a character, and it, it, it was at the same time period. I mean, it's basically, he's, he's envisioning this story at the same time as he envisioned the one we just talked about, the Strange High House on the Hill, Strange High House in the Mist, sorry. Strange High House in the Mist, Pikmin's model, Unknown Kadath, all kind of in the same time period. So there's a lot of overlap here, I think. Strange High House in the in the Mist. You have this kind of idea of a quest to to search for something. Uh, Carter is much more purposeful in what he's trying to do than um, than the main character in Strange High House on the Mist. Thomas Olney. Um, in Pikmin, it's just it's the the connection is the ghouls. The ghouls are a, like a race, if you will, in 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 this in the Dreamlands. So uh, I think one reason people like this story is narratively, it, it's structured very different than other Lovecraft stories. Often he'll have first person narration. Sometimes he'll have third person narration. Um, but here it is a first person narration, but it's all told as a story. It's like it's actually literally these two guys drinking together. And there's they actually the text stops and says, like, let's get another drink or let me fill up your glass. So they're drinking and he's. In kind of in real time telling this this story so it's more of an oral uh discussion and i don't think he did that in any other story as far as i know he does experiment with other interesting narrative devices i think most notably in call of cthulhu again written about the same time a little you know we already talked about that but in the call of cthulhu you have the playing with uh different uh different nested stories it's, it's like you open up a box and there's a story in the box and you open up another box and there's a different story and you realize the connections the tendrils connecting all those stories only when they're all kind of put on the table together it's it's, it's like newspaper clippings and that's a really fascinating way to tell a story this is in real time maybe the closest is maybe like dagon where it's like the suicide note um but this is presented as a conversation and it's very conversational and it, it just shows you that lovecraft could construct stories with very very different styles of narration i think that's to his his credit here so um it's a it's uh not the longest story but it's kind of one of his by lovecraft standards like a mid-length story i think it's it's 18 18 pages or so in the leslie Klinger anthology a lot of his stories were around 10 pages and then you got the longer ones that that of course come later it's you know I don't know. It's it's about the length of a story like Horror at Red Hook, I guess. Maybe a little bit shorter. Um, and the bulk of the story isn't even really explicitly about art. It's about Boston. And I think that's really what I want to 
have us think about and talk about a little bit, um, and that's what interests me most, is the geography of the city and how Lovecraft here describes um, Boston. But anyways, as, as the story begins, again, it's very conversational. So he's talking to this guy, Elliot, um, and he's saying, like, I, like, Pickman basically gets pushed out of Boston art society. He gets rejected by all the other artists and the, and the, and the critics. And he's like, I know this. And I know it's because he painted weird stuff. And that's not why... I stopped hanging out with Pikmin. Like that's the backstory here is that this narrator at some point decided even he has had too much of Pikmin. So Pikmin has become increasingly isolated um, as a result of this. uh, The story goes, no, I don't know what's become of Pikmin. Well, he's disappeared, but um, that's obviously something connected to unknown Kadath. But it says, no, I don't know what's become of Pikmin and I don't like to guess. You might have surmised I have some inside information when I dropped him. And that's why I don't want to think about where he's gone. Let the police find what they can. It won't be much, judging from the fact that they don't yet know the name of the old end place he hired under the name of Peters. I'm not sure I could find it again myself. Not that I'd ever try even in broad daylight. So he has these great fears of now going underground. Many Lovecraft stories begin with, like, I'm afraid of this, and I'm going to tell you why. Like, I'm afraid of the dark, or I'm afraid of the cold, or I'm afraid of the brick buildings, as in, like, Horror Red Hook. There's always, like... A fear and then an explanation about why he's afraid of it later on. Um, and and yeah, he, that's a device he uses a lot, especially in his, his earlier stories. But it never fully goes away. Um, but he says, like, I'm not the first to drop Pikmin. Other people had dropped him before, like all the anyone in the art community. And he's like, I'm going to tell you why. It's not because of morbid art. It's not because he painted weird stuff. So we know right away that he's painting weird stuff, like ghouls eating people, and, you know, that seems to be his main theme. He's, and and the, the, the pictures are mentioned, and they're, the paintings, I mean, they're mentioned, and they're described, but they're not always, you know, it's hard to put in, like, in our mind, like, what does this look like? I'm sure people have tried to recreate what these paintings would be, um, you know, they're supposed to be really realistic and really terrifying and, and unnerving, right? Just on their own. It's without the secret of, of what's in there. And I'll just tell you, spoiler alert, you know, again, obviously I don't believe in spoilers. So I'll just tell you, he's painting these off of real creatures that he's encountering, you know, in this like basement that he's working from. And there's like a tunnel down into the catacombs underneath the city of Boston. And he actually sees these ghouls. He takes photos of them. Sometimes he has to shoot them. <laughs> to keep them from like getting you know giving him too much trouble than he can deal with but he's got these photographs of these ghouls and that's what he's painting from that's so these are all drawn from life so that's the fear that's the scare at the end is like these are not just from his imagination these are from reality and i want to go back here and think about world war one because when you think about the grotesque morbid art that emerged in the aftermath of world war one that's also all being drawn from life it's there might be imaginative elements to it, but you know the the weird gas mask photos or the surrealism or the, the 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 bleak landscapes and all that stuff that you saw, and even the monstrous stuff, in a sense, it's drawn from life. I think that's a uh, Poole's point in that book, Wastelands, is that World War One did have this psychological impact on a whole generation of writers, and so there's truth to this that modern art is being drawn from life, just like uh, Pickman's paintings you know that's obviously the name pikmin's model it's, it's a real ghoul 
So he actually talks explicitly about the art of fear and kind of the new emergence of, of artists exploring themes that are fearful. He says, in uh, some of this, there's like a, hint, a shout out to like weird fiction and the pulps, which always would have like catchy covers and, and, and weird pictures. And, he, and we get here Lovecraft writing, you know, it takes profound art and profound insight into nature to turn out stuff like Pikmin's. Any magazine cover hack can splash paint around wildly and call it a nightmare, or a witch's Sabbath, or a portrait of the devil. But only a great painter can make such things really scare or ring true. That's because only a real artist knows the actual anatomy of the terrible or the physiology of fear. The exact sort of lines and proportions that connect up the late with latent instincts or hereditary memories to fright and a proper color contrast and lighting effects to stir the dormant sense of strainness, strangeness. I don't have to tell you why a fusilli really brings a shiver while a cheap ghost story front piece merely makes us laugh. There's something those fellows catch beyond life, and they're able to make us catch for a second. Dore had it, Sime had it, Angora of Chicago had it, and Pikmin had it as no man had it before, or I hope to heaven ever will again. So he's saying, you know, it's not just Pikmin, it's the whole generation of artists are able to kind of catch into this psychology of fear and although world war one's not mentioned at all in this story it's it's clearly there um so um we get a little bit more of art talked about here like uh he actually it's actually foreshadowed early on where you know paintings that are drawn from life versus models and 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 how that has a difference in the effect of art um and he gets a little bit into the history of these kind of weird images in art, right? There's already the suggestion early on, actually, that, that Pikmin may not even be fully human anymore. He, he says it here. Um, he said Pikmin repelled him more and more every day and almost frightened him towards the last. That the fellow's features and expressions were slowly developing in a way he didn't like, in a way that wasn't human. He had a lot of talk about diet and said Pikmin must be abnormal and eccentric to the last degree. End quote. Now, if the story stands, you don't need Pikmin to be a ghoul for it to work. But the hint, hints here, this is something that when you go forward to Unknown Kadath, he's transformed into a ghoul. So he is, if you take these stories together as part of like the same universe, which is hard not to do because of the character connections, it's, it seems he is already physically transforming through his encounters with the ghouls. And that's leading him to this. So... Um, so at this point, he kind of moves into some of his narration of his encounter with, with um, Pikmin. We, we learn, for instance, that Pikmin ha is an old Salem stock, as we might expect. He even having a witch ancestor hanged. Uh, you know, if you read through Lovecraft, there's a lot of hanged witches and a lot of people with ancestors who had hanged witches. Um, I suppose there's, there was a lot of hanged witches in New England, so I suppose the... A lot of people would have some relationship personally to them, but certainly they show up in Lovecraft stories more than average. A lot of characters have these these relationships. Um, this this is this hereditary um, kind of inheritance, right? Um, I think that's actually one of the most interesting things about the Lovecraft Country series and book that it really that was really 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 how they're able to turn the racial narrative on its head. It's because America is so interracial, culturally, but even biologically, through slavery, which was institutionalized rape uh, for, for many women. 
Um, of course, you know, Lovecraft knew, I think, that the bloodlines of America aren't pure. There isn't this pure Anglo-Saxon past. It's clear from his letters that he knows this doesn't exist. It's clear from his stories, too, in the sense that he's so fearful of miscegenation. And I think what Lovecraft Country did really well is to turn that on his head and say, okay, let's just embrace the fact that our bloodlines are mixed and then put that in kind of a, a somewhat Lovecraftian um, story. I think it kind of works there. Um, but anyways, we're, we're talking about Pickman's model here. We're not talking about Lovecraft Country, at least not yet. Um, he gets a lot into the history here of New England, of Boston, of particularly North End, the reality of witches, the the oppression of the witches is here too. Um, the knowledge of people, like the networks of knowledge carrying on through generations. So all these standard Lovecraft themes are here. But, you know, when we're about eight, seven, eight pages into the story, then we get this hidden history of New England, which really comes off strong. I think for me, that's the most interesting part of this story, is this hidden history of, of, of New England. This, the, you have stuff from the sea as well. Quote, there were witches and what's their spells summoned, pirates and what they brought in from the sea, smugglers, privateers. And I tell you, people knew how to live and how to enlarge the bounds of life in the old times. This wasn't the only world a bold and wise men could know. And to think of today in contrast with such pale pink brains that even a club of supporters artists gets shudders and convulsions if a picture goes beyond the feelings of a Beacon Street tea table. End quote. So our narrator has sympathy for what Pickman's trying to do because... Our narrator knows there's a dark history in New England. And by exposing it, by exploring it, Pickman's doing us a service. But most people are, you know, that they've so, they so whitewashed their history. I use that, that whitewashed literally, you know, literally here. Um, but beyond that, they also just kind of pretend this dark history didn't exist. That's what ha makes Hawthorne so fascinating, right? Is he will write these romances, but under the surface of it, there's always this dark history and dark past. We even have foreigners here and, and uh, a connection to kind of horror at Red Hook, I think. A, a really interesting contrast here. Um, in fact, like another c contrast with Red Hook here is both Boston and, and New York are described as, as having these dark neighborhoods kind of expand and how the city sort of grows over itself in layers like a callus. And like there's this old core, but it gets grown over by this something ugly and disgusting. It's um, and, and it's expanding. Right. Right. Where is this? Quote, the only saving grace of the present is that it's too damn stupid to question the past very closely. What do maps and records and guidebooks really tell of the North End? Bah. At a, at a guess, I'll guarantee you at least 30 or 40 alleys and networks of alleys north of Prince Street that aren't suspected by 10 living beings outside of the foreigners that swarm there. And what do these dagos know of their meaning? No, Thurber, these ancient places are dreaming gorgeously and overflowing with wonder and terror and escape from the commonplace, and yet there's not a living soul to understand or profit from them. Or rather, there's only one living soul, for I haven't been digging around in this past for nothing. Um, so this idea of the kind of this, of the city changing and, and sort of organic and it's alive and, and it's alive in kind of a horrible way, right? And it, it's not just New York, right? It's also Boston. And I think he's really influenced here by the fact that, if you remember, like he took these walking tours of Providence after he returned to Providence and he saw that Providence also had these neighborhoods 
and and so he sees the kind of the creeping expansion of this of course in in his mind it's kind of this foreign influence or this vulgar modernism uh you know these are all interconnected for him but anyways it's fascinating stuff and i think the geography of boston here for me is the highlight of the story um and i think that's what i would constantly come back to for to mine for for interpretation and information i I think it's it's really a this is really lovecraft really in so many ways summarizing his whole philosophy and worldview in fact i think as we get to this point in his career there's very few stories that don't at some level interconnect all his major themes uh, in some way so i'm going to be repetitive a lot in this podcast and i apologize for that but it's just to reinforce that what I think are, are key Lovecraftian themes are there in almost all the stories, especially in the later half of the of his career, the last ten years or so of his of his writing career. Much of which, much of this stuff was written around this time period, though, from late thirties to the nineteen thirty three, nineteen thirty two or so. Let me check the dates here. Yeah, he wrote the the latest story he wrote. Um, well, let's just think about this. Shadow Over Innsmouth, written in 1931, not published till 36. At the Mountains of Madness, published in 31, not published till 36. Whisper in Darkness, published in 1930. Written in 1930, published in 1931. Dunwich Horror, 1928, published 1929. Really, he didn't write much after 1933 with The Thing on the Doorstep, except Shadow at a Time and Haunter in the Dark. Um, the, the bulk of what he was most known for came late 1920s early 1930s the period we're in now in this in this read through so he's anyways back to our story our narrator goes through this um kind of tour of boston and it's underground and he you know in fact i think the story begins saying in like i'll tell you why i don't take the i take don't take the subway i only take taxis now and it's because of this but they, they go through the underground and eventually Pickman leads him to this special studio he has kind of hidden away where he does this really weird stuff. All right. But to get there, he has to go through all these alleys and and kind of the dark underground of the city. And it's the most fascinating part of the story for me, as I've been saying. Um, it's only uh, when we're like actually towards the end of the story in the last few pages of the story that we're introduced to the entire theme of ghouls. I guess it was intervention early on in the name of the painting, right? But the ghouls are actually described um, not until we're we're almost through the story. Quote, the madness and monstrosity lay in the figure of the foreground, for Pickman's morbid art was predominantly one of demonic portraiture. These figures were seldom completely human, but often approached humanity by varied degrees. Most of their bodies, while roughly bipedal, had a forged slumping and a vaguely canine... uh, Sorry, I lost my place. Vaguely... Vaguely canine cast. The texture of the majority was a kind of unpleasant rubberness. Ugh, I can see them now. Their occupations, well, don't ask me to be precise. They were usually feeding. I won't say on what. Um, feeding on people, we presume. And then we get into the details of his paintings a little bit more, specifically in how alive they are. How there's this this kind of relationship between the humans and the non-human figures, this kind of uncanny, subtle line between them, that it's not even clear, this line between the human and the non-human, the ghoul and the human, 
in, in their features and their expressions and all that. It's, it's really creepy stuff. But he goes on some details about the, about the art. And then he finally, as he gets to the final pages, he begins to analyze it. Specifically, he's going to analyze, like, why is this so horrific for me? Why can't I, you know, I like the weird stuff. I like the morbid art, he says. You know, but what was it about Pickman's art that, that kind of disturbed me so deeply? Uh, and Lovecraft writes, As I gradually studied myself and got readjusted to this second room of devilry and morbidity, I began to analyze some of the points in my sickening loathing. In the first place, I say to myself, these things repelled me, or sorry, these things repelled because of their utter inhumanity and callous cruelty they showed in Pickman. End quote. Now, I stop here because he's already just said that the line between the human and the inhuman in the art is not so clear, but it's deepening the unhumanity of Pickman, the artist. Going on, quote, The fellow must be a relentless enemy of all mankind to take such glee in the torture of brain and flesh and the degradation of the moral tenement. In the second place, they terrified because of their very greatness. Their art was the art that convinced. When we saw the pictures, we saw the demons themselves and were afraid of them. And the queer part was that Pickman got none of his power from the use of selectness and bizarre, bizarre. End quote. So then, you know, I'll just kind of move on and get to the, the climax of the story here. Because I think I said most of what I want to say about this story. Um, how the story climaxes, if you don't, if you haven't read it, is he's taken into this studio and shown these works. And then he talks about these rats, these big rats, and he has to get his gun out. This is Pikmin. He has to get his gun out. And he goes into this back room and starts firing his gun a few times. He says, like, oh, there's really bad rats here. It's really kind of humorous. He says, the deuce knows what they eat, Thurber. That's the name of the narrator, Thurber. For these archaic tunnels touch graveyard and witch dens and seacoast. Great line there, by the way. Exactly. I mean, tunnels connecting to witches in the sea. That's how, how more Lovecraftian can you get than that? I mean, that sums up like so much of his philosophy and what his stories are really about. Underground networks, tunnels connecting to the sea and connecting to witches. Temporally and geographically. Beautiful, wonderful line there. Um, but anyways, he you know, he just says it's rats, but it's pretty clear it's ghouls or, or, or something akin to that. And he says like, uh, so while he was gone, I think he looks at the paintings and this is when he sees the photograph, but it's not revealed until the final moments of the story when he says, okay, now I'll tell you why it dropped him. It's not because his art is, is weird. It wasn't the paintings in themselves. It wasn't his skill. It wasn't his weirdness. It wasn't because the rest of the Boston art community dropped him. It's not none of those reasons. It's because of this curled up paper that was tacked to one of the canvases and he looked at it and it was a photograph and it's this model. His model was a photograph and so he was drawing these things from life. Quote, well, the paper wasn't a photograph of any background after all. What it showed was simply the monstrosity being, being he was painting on that awful canvas. It was a model he was using and its background was merely the wall of the cellar studio in minute detail. But by God, Elliot, it was a photograph from life. End quote. So it's not only just that it was a photograph from life, it was taken in the studio. It was taken like right where he was in this underground place connected to some kind of deeper underground networks. So that's it. So, But I think most of you know this story and know why it, it, its effect is so wonderful. And, and I think that's it's why it's one of his more popular, of his shorter, shorter tales. I'm actually surprised it wasn't included in the original um, anthology of, of Klinger's anthology because it, 
it is such a great story. It's really effective. It's so unique. Um, maybe there just wasn't room. It is a th- thick book, but I'm, you know, I guess my feeling is just do them all. Just do all 60 stories. Just have a really big, thick book. A big Bible that we can carry around instead of having, you know, three different things. But I guess you couldn't do that with all the footnotes and 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 annotations that we get here in this this wonderful edition. I still think they should have included all the stories in the second edition and left nothing out. But you know, because it, it's half the size, half the size. There's there certainly was room to get put all of them in. But he did. Anyway, sum up. Great story, but you know, summed up right here. For these archaic tunnels, touch graveyards and witch dens and seacoast. That's it. That's that's Lovecraft in a nutshell. If you if you if you wanted it, uh, great on the geography of, of Boston, this kind of creeping expansion of these weird communities, but this deep history underneath these tunnels. You know, I, I kind of reminded of it because it is so good on Stephen King's. It is so good on these different like tunnels over tunnels, sewers over sewers over hundreds of years being developed so it's, it's all a maze down there and no one know really like even the sewer workers don't know where they all go the kids go down there and they sort of get lost but it's layers like really at the heart of dairy right the heart of it and there you know the same kind of idea here of, of a whole underground of the city that's just really horrific um and that's that there's people there there's ghouls there there's people who are in touch with it i think that's what's horrifying right not just that these things exist but there's people who are in conversation with uh these elements so that's that's it great story definitely one you want to read if you haven't read it yet so uh next up i'll be looking at dream quest of the of unknown kadath uh four episodes i suppose it's 100 pages uh, in this anthology. So it's about four hours of the audiobook. So I'll be reviewing that. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a mess. There's a lot going on. It doesn't... I mean, it's like thematically, it, it's stuff he's already sort of talked about in short stories. Uh, it combines a lot of his Dreamland stories. It is the capstone dream, dream quest uh, or... Dreamland story. I think Strange High Hall, Strange High House in the Mist, is a much shorter, concise statement of what he's trying to do in the Dreamland stories. But he tries. As can I do this as a novel? And he tried. He never published it, but um, he eventually would write two more long stories. Case of Charles Dexter Ward, one of my favorite Lovecraft stories, and then At the Mountains of Madness, all written uh, between. Uh, 26 and, and 31. So uh, this was not published until when? Till, till 1943, after his death by Arkham House. But anyways, we're going to enjoy, I think, going into this. So take a nap, dream a little bit, and uh, be ready in a few days for uh, as we jump into the dream quests of, of, of Randolph Carter. We'll see where he is. It's been a while since we... Actually, we just talked about him. Silver Key. Forgot about it. So we'll, we'll revisit uh, Randolph Carter and, and see where he leads us as he journeys to the dreamlands. So as always, thanks for listening, and I'll, I'll see you next time.
day.